Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's get into it. We are going to start off, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries. First two here are from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 1st, 2023. Barbara Zayas, MD. Author unknown. Barbara attended Bryn Mawr College and the University of Miami, completing her undergraduate degree in 1962. In 1968, she obtained her MD from the University of Miami. Barbara was board certified in neurology, anatomic pathology, neuropathology, and forensic pathology. Over her long career, Barbara held the positions of assistant professor of neuropathology at the University of Pittsburgh, associate professor of neuropathology at the University of California at Irvine, and clinical assistant professor of neurology at the University of Southern California. One of those rare individuals who practiced neurology as well as pathology and neuropathology. Barbara spent the last 10 years of her career as a deputy coroner for forensic neuropathology for Orange County, California. Major research interests included developmental neuropathology, childhood brain tumors, and quantitative and quantitative assessment of atherosclerosis in cerebral vessels, the forensic pathology of head injury in child abuse, and neurodegenerative dementias. From 1992 until 2002, she was co-investigator, neuropathology core ischemic vascular dementia program, University of Southern California, Rancho Los Amigos Medical Center, California. A common thread through Barbara's life was teaching wherever she found herself, whether it was teaching medical students, neurology, or neuropathology residents, being an invited speaker or teaching about succulents and palms. Uh, Barbara was passionate about succulents and palms, but had no interest in orchids unless blooming. She was a docent for succulents and the, at the Huntington Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California for many years. Barbara was committed to reading books for the visually impaired. She was the favorite uh, reader for people with visual impairments who were interested in science and medicinal medicine. She was a docent at the Los Angeles Public Library, the Los Angeles Zoo, and a frequent visitor of the Los Angeles Humane Society. Barbara loved to cook and to feed people, especially family and friends. With over 500 cookbooks to choose from, Barbara particularly liked to modify recipes in order to create the perfect taste combinations. Barbara was predeceased by her parents, Nathan and Edith Weinstein, and her brother, Gerald Weinstein, M.D. She leaves behind Floyd Gillis, M.D., her husband of 34 years, Nardo Zayas, 1960-76, children Raquel Arcelanian, M.S.W., Louis Arcelanian, J.D., Julie Zayas, MSDVM, PhD, Elizabeth Gillis, MD, Susan Abu Jabber, MED, CAES, Karik Abu Jabbar, MAMPH, David Gillis, and Richard Gillis, grandchildren Eddie and Zachary Fuertes, Stella Kate Zayas, Chloe Abu Jabbar, MS, and Jasper Abu Jabbar, MD, James Gillis, ME, and Maxwell Gillis. Barbara will be interned at the Pacific View Memorial Park and Mortuary, 
3500 Pacific View Drive, Corona Del Mar, California, 92625 as of December 29, 2022. That was Barbara Zayas, MD, author unknown. And we go on to Frederick Aronowitz, July 3rd, 1935 to December 17, 2022, author unknown. Renowned physicist and world expert on laser euros dies at 87. American physicist Frederick Aronowitz, a leading expert on laser gyro technology, died on December 17, 2022 in Belmont, Massachusetts. He was 87 years old. Anyone who has flown in a commercial jetliner, starting with the Boeing 757, has benefited from Dr. Aronowitz's success in developing ring laser gyro technology for high-performance navigation. He's widely recognized as the primary theorist, analyst, and advocate for laser gyro technology. He published the first comprehensive analysis of the laser gyro in 1965. Theory of a traveling wave optical maser described the salient features of the laser gyro, gyro in explicit detail. His many papers and textbooks delineating the fundamental physics of the laser gyro established the scientific basis for a broad range of applications, including use in military aircraft, commercial aviation, ships, and spacecraft. Dr. Aronowitz had great insight into the capabilities of laser gyro technology and championed a course of action to bring the laser gyro to practical fruition. He held five patents for features of laser gyro navigational systems and was invited to lecture, publish, and consult on a regular basis. Dr. Aronowitz revolutionized the field of inertial navigation systems, for which he received many prestigious awards. Top among them was the Elmer A. Sperry Award, 1984, given jointly by leading engineering societies. The American Institute of Physics presented him with the Industrial Physics Prize, 1984, and the IEEE bestowed the Kirshner Award, 1988, on Dr. Aronowitz for his substantial contribution to the modern era of electronic navigation. He was born on July 3, 1935 in New York City to Nathan Aronowitz and Beatrice Gordon Aronowitz. A New Yorker to the core, he graduated from the Bronx High School of Science in 1952, received his B.S. in physics from Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute in 1956, and a Ph.D. in physics from New York University in 1969. He taught at NYU for several years, and in 1962, he joined the Systems and Research Center at Honeywell in Minneapolis. In 1983, he moved to the Raytheon Company in Massachusetts as manager of laser gyro development, and then to California as chief scientist for Rockwell International, now Boeing, as the laser gyro expert. Fred was an expert chess and bridge player. He loved traveling. Gilbert and Sullivan was an elegant da- uh, uh, Gilbert and was an elegant dancer, like his mother and grandmother, grandfather. His favorite piece of music was the second waltz by Shostakovich. He surprised and delighted one of his daughters with a flawless dance to the music of Oscar de Leon on a cruise ship one evening. He leaves his wife of 53 years, Marguerite Madison Aronowitz, three daughters, Ma- uh, Malika, Michelle, and Jacqueline three grandchildren, a sister Paula, and many cousins, nieces, and nephews. 
He was loved dearly and will be sorely missed by those who knew his kind soul and dry sense of humor. That was Frederick Aronowitz, July 3rd, 1935 to December 17, 2022, author unknown. Both were from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 1st, 2023. All right, and now we have one from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, January 8th, 2022, 23 actually. This first one is actually Lydia Ackley Late Levi, October 10, 1938 to December 23rd, 2022, Author unknown. Lydia Ackley Levy passed away on December 23, 2022, at the age of 84. She was born October 10, 1938, in Aberdeen, South Dakota, to Gerald Dean McGraw and Owen Frederick Ackley. Lydia spent most of her childhood in Aberdeen, other than traveling with her mother and sister to various naval bases to be with her father uh, while he served as an ensign on a destroyer escort during World War II, often on the dangerous Murmansk run protecting run, uh, run protecting uh, supply ships carrying vital war material from Britain to Russia from deadly U-boats. Lydia graduated from Central High School in Aberdeen in 1956, then left South Dakota to attend Wesley College in Wesley, Massachusetts. After her freshman year, Lydia uh, decided an all-girls school was not for her and transferred to her parents' alma mater, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, from where she graduated in 1960 with a degree in art history. At Northwestern, Lydia joined the Delta 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 sorority and began dating another Aberdeen native and wild coat, wildcat, Charles Chuck Levi, who graduated from Central High School one year before her. When Chuck first saw Lydia at Central High, he remarked to a friend that Lydia was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen in his life. Shortly after Chuck's graduation from Northwestern University School of Law in Chicago, Chuck and Lydia were married on June 11, 1961, under a hoopah at the Ackley home in Aberdeen. For their honeymoon, the newlyweds uh, piled all their worldly belongings into a 1961 Chevy Impala convertible and after an afternoon wedding reception began driving to Los Angeles, pausing to have their first evening meal as a married couple at the rural South Dakota gas station service counter. Chuck had a one-year job waiting for him as a teaching associate at UCLA Law School teaching legal research and writing. It was Lydia's first visit to the Golden State where she would reside for the rest of her life. Lydia was a devoted homemaker, raising the couple's two sons, Grant and Brian. She was a major patron of the arts, regularly attending symphonies for the L.A. Philharmonic, and uh, most Saturday evenings during the summer, she could be found at the Hollywood Bowl, where she delighted in preparing picnics for, uh, for Chuck and whoever their guests were that evening. She also worked as a museum at Dawson for many years, first at the Museum of Contemporary Art and then at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where she rose to become president of the Dawson Council. For several years, Lydia could be seen most Sundays at 2 p.m. at LACMA, delivering a Dawson lecture covering David Hockney's famous painting, Pear Blossom Highway, to an interested art audience. Lydia was a great asset to Chuck, uh, for Chuck in the development of his law practice by graciously entertaining the members of his law firm and his clients. While not attending her to her docent duties, Lydia was an active world traveler. She and Chuck traveled to many exotic destinations from Asia to Africa to Antarctica. Her favorite trips, however, were those with the whole family, Chuck, her sons, and grandchildren, 
which included numerous cruises and several trips to Hawaii. Liddy is survived by her, by her husband, Chuck, uh, with whom she celebrated their 61st wedding anniversary this past June. Son Grant, son Brian, daughter-in-law Margaret, and she was blessed with five grandchildren who were a pride and joy, Sam, Patrick, Charlie, Alexandria, and Jimmy. The loss of Lydia has resulted in a sadness in the hearts of her loved ones that will never leave them. In their 80s, long after Chuck's retirement, before partaking on their evening gourmet meal prepared by Lydia, she and Chuck would sit in the living room of their well-located, art-filled, custom-built home they had designed, and looking about them, Lydia would sometimes raise her wine glass and toast, not bad from two kids from South Dakota. Not bad indeed. Burial will take place 10 a.m. Friday, January 13, 2023 at Hillside Memorial Park, 6001 West Sentinella Avenue, Los Angeles, 90045-800-567-91994. Services will be live-streamed for friends and family unable to attend Lydia's services. Large sanctuary service beginning at 10 a.m. Uh, Hillside Memorial dot, uh, dot live control dot TV slash 85233C2F. Graveside service begins beginning at 10.45 a.m. 360xstream.com slash event slash Lydia dash Levy. That was Lydia Ackley Levy. October 10, 1938 to December 23, 2022. Author unknown. And from the same obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 8, 2023, we have Miriam K. Warshaw, September 16, 1942 to December 29, 2022. Author unknown. Miriam K. Warshaw, longtime resident of Southern California and of New York City, died December 29 in a memory care memory care facility in the San Fernando Valley. She was 80 and had been suffering for years with Alzheimer's. Born Miriam Joan Kessler in Seattle on September 16, 1942 to parents Nina and Jack Kessler and known for family to family and friends as Mimi, she moved to Los Angeles in 1946 when, their, when her folks took their three children there to start a business, Rosemarie Reed Swimsuits. The company proved so successful that uh, school and Beverly that by 1950, the Kesslers had moved to Beverly Hills, where Mimi attended El Rodeo School and Beverly Hills High School, from which she graduated in 1960. At 18, on finishing her first year at UCLA, she married Michael Nesenson, a friend of her older brother Rick, and they started a family. In the early 70s, with three children, Margaret, Elaine, and John, they divorced. In 1977, Mimi and her kids moved to Luke. Lucadia in North San Diego County, where they lived for three years in a house on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, which she loved. She also enjoyed her work at La Costa Crystal Shop and at Hone Motors, a Mercedes-Benz dealership, where she was among the first women to sell cars. Her second marriage to Henry Warshaw in 1980 took her and her kids to New York City and a Park Avenue apartment where she remained with Henry, working as his personal assistant in his family's textile business, H. Warshaw & Sons, long after ch uh, her children had returned to California. Now known as Miriam, she enjoyed travels with her husband to Switzerland and Africa, among other destinations. After his death in 2015, she returned to California. Mimi, 
or Miriam, depending on which when people knew her, was virtually selfless as a wife and mother, unconditionally devoted to her husband and family with complete integrity of purpose and commitment to their well-being. She was con- conversant in Spanish and loved Mexico and Mexican food. She also loved animals, especially her dogs, and was a generous donor to the SPCA as well as to the Democratic Party, the ACLU, and other human rights organizations. Her kindness and generosity, with both her time and her material assistance, her solidarity and sympathy, were were above all shared with family and friends. She was predeceased by her youngest child, John, in 1998 at the age of 29. His death was a tragic turning point in in her life. But she carried her grief with dignity, courage, and a tough equanimity, true to the crisis navigator and problem solver she had always been. Her survivors include her daughters, Elaine Cates and Margaret Hayward, her stepchildren, Michael Bluestein, Douglas and Rebecca Warshaw, her brothers, Bruce and his wife, Joan, Rick and Stephen Kessler, grandchildren, Olivia Kennedy, Will Hayward and Sam Hayward, Charlotte Hayward, Jack Parker, Sarah Bluestein, and Stephen Bluestein, and great-grandchildren Eleanor Kennedy and Iris Kennedy. A private family memorial is planning is planned. That was Miriam K. Warshaw, September 16, 1942 to December 29, 2022. Uh, author unknown from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 8, 2023. All right, we have one Israel story here. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, Visit to Jerusalem Holy Site Stokes Anger. A far-right Israeli cabinet minister's foray is denounced by the U.S. and others by Ilan Ben Zion. Jerusalem. An ultra-nationalist Israeli cabinet minister on Tuesday visited a contentious Jerusalem holy site for the first time since Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new far-right government took office last week. The visit drew fierce condemnation from across the Muslim world and a strong rebuke from the United States. The visit fueled fears of unrest as Palestinian militant groups threatened to act in response. On Tuesday evening, the Israeli military said militants from the Gaza Strip tried to fire a rocket into southern Israel, but the projectile failed to make it beyond the Hamas-controlled territory. Netanyahu attempted to play down the incident, saying it was in line with long-standing understandings at the disputed holy site. But the visit by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Givur unnerved enemies and allies who have expressed strong misgivings about the far-right makeup of the new government. Ben-Givur, a West Bank settler leader who draws inspiration from a racist rabbi, entered the site known to Jews as the Temple Mount and to Muslims as the Noble Sanctuary flanked by a large contingent of police officers. His plans to visit, announced earlier this week, had drawn threats from Gaza's Hamas militant group. The Israeli government won't surrender to a murderous organization to a vile terrorist organization, Ben Givor, known for his anti-Arab rhetoric and provocative stunts, said in a video clip taken during the visit. Described, uh, describing the site as the most important place for the Jewish people, he decried what he called racist discrimination against Jewish visits there. With the Dome of the Rock in the background and waving his fingers at the, uh, at the camera, he said the visits would continue. 
The site is the holiest in Judaism, uh, home to the ancient biblical temples. Today, it houses the Al-Aqiza Mosque, the third holiest, uh, holiest site in Islam. Since Israel captured the site in 1967, Jews have been allowed to visit but not pray there. Ben Giver has long called for greater Jewish access to the holy site. Palestinians consider the mosque a national symbol and have view, have views such visits as provocative and as a potential precursor to Israel seizing control over the compound. Most rabbis forbid Jews from praying on the site, but there has been a growing movement in recent years of Jews who support worship here. The site has been the scene of frequent clashes between Palestinian protesters and Israeli security forces, most recently last April. Although Tuesday's incident passed without incident, U.S. Ambassador Tom Nids, N-I-D-E-S, said that he has been very clear in conversations with the Israeli government on the issue of preserving the status quo in Jerusalem's holy sites, actions that prevent, uh, actions that, prevent that are unacceptable. The United Arab Emirates, which established full diplomatic ties with Israel in 2020, strongly condemned the storming of Al-Aqiza Mosque courtyard uh, by an Israeli minister under the protection of the Israeli forces. It calls on Israel to halt serious and provocative violations taking place there. Bahrain, which also recognized Israel at the same time, did not immediately acknowledge the incidents. Saudi Arabia, with which Netanyahu hopes to establish similar ties, condemned the Israel minister's action, as did statements from Kuwait and Qatar. None of the three countries had, has diplomatic ties with, with Israel. Turkey, which only recently reestablished full development, uh, diplomatic ties with Israel, condemned what it said <clears throat> was the provocative action by Ben Givar. It urged Israel to act responsibly. Israel's neighbor Jordan, which acts as custodian of the contested shrine, condemned Ben Giver's visit in the strongest terms and summoned Israel's ambassador to lodge a protest. Egypt, another key Arab ally of Israel's, warned against negative repercussions of such measures on security and stability in the occupied territories and the region and on the future of the peace process. Tensions at the disputed compound have fueled past rounds of, violent, of violence. A visit by then-Israeli opposition leader Ariel Sharon in September 2000 helped spark clashes that became the Second Palestinian Uprising, or Intifada. Clashes between the Israeli security forces and Palestinian demonstrators in and around the site fueled an 11-day war with Hamas in 2021. Hamas spokesman Hazem Kwazim said Ben Giver's visit was a continuation of the Zionist occupation of uh, aggression on our sacred places and war on our Arab identity. Our Palestinian people will continue to defend their holy places and Al-Qiza Mosque, he said. Lebanon's Hezbollah group, which fought Israel in a month-long war in 2006, said the visit threatened to blow up the region. Responding to the outcry, Netanyahu said late Tuesday that Israel remains committed to strictly maintaining the status quo at the site. The claim that a change has been made in the status quo is without foundation. Netanyahu returned to office last week for his sixth term as prime minister, leading the most religious right-wing government in the country's history. Its goals include expanding West Bank settlements 
and annexing the occupied territory. Israel captured the old city of Jerusalem with its, with its sites holy to three monotheistic faiths along with the rest of East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip in the 1967 Middle East War. The Palestinians seek those territories for a future independent state with East Jerusalem as capital. Israel annexed East Jerusalem in a move unrecognized by most of the international community and considers the city its undivided, eternal capital. The competing claims to the site lie at the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Ben Givur is head of the ultranationalist religious Jewish power faction and has a history of inflammatory remarks and actions against Palestinians. He was once convicted of incitement and supporting a Jewish terrorist group, but in his new job now commands Israel's police force. A day earlier, opposition leader Yair Lapid, who until last week was Israel's prime minister, warned that Ben Givur's intended visit would lead to violence that will endanger human lives and cost human lives. The visit came following months of mounting tensions between Israelis and Palestinians. Early Tuesday, a Palestinian official, a Palestinian official said a 15-year-old boy was killed by Israeli army fire near the occupied West Bank city of Bethlehem. The Israeli military said its forces had shot at people throwing firebombs toward troops. On Monday, the Israeli rights group Beit uh, in tw said 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians since 2004, a period of intense violence that came during a Palestinian uprising. It said nearly 150 Palestinians were killed by Israeli fire in the West Bank of and East Jerusalem. The Israeli military has been conducting near-daily raids in Palestinian cities and towns since a spate of Palestinian attacks against Israelis killed 19 last spring. A fresh wave of attacks killed at least nine more Israelis in the fall. The Israeli army says most of the Palestinians killed have been militants, but stone-throwing youths protesting the incursions and others not involved in confrontations have also been killed. There was a visit to Jerusalem holy site Stokes Anger by Elon Ben Zion from the World Sex with the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 4, 2023. Ben Zion writes for the Associated Press. Okay, and back here at home, this is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 4, 2023. Biden renominates Garcetti to be U.S. Ambassador to India by Courtney Suramanian and Dakota Smith. President Biden on Tuesday renominated former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti to be U.S. Ambassador to India after a confirmation failed to advance through the U.S. Senate last year. The White House also resubmitted nominations for roughly 60 people for key administrative posts or national security positions, as well as 25 judicial nominees who failed to win confirmation in 2022. Candidates must be renominated at the start of each new Congress. Biden's support for Garcetti, whom he first tapped for the position in 2021, is notable given how long the nomination has lingered in Washington. The vacant diplomatic post comes as Biden looks to allies to help uh, contain the rise of China and shore up support for Ukraine after, after Russia's invasion. Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi will host the 
uh, G20 uh, leaders in September in New Delhi. White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre told reporters Tuesday that Garcetti is well qualified for the vital role. We're hopeful that the Senate will confirm him promptly, Jean-Pierre said. I'm grateful for the president's confidence and strong support on both sides of the aisle in the Senate, Garcetti said. I look forward to completing this process so that I can begin serving in India and advancing this critical partnership as quickly as possible. Garcetti was announced as the White House pick for India in July 2021, but a vote on the appointment was never scheduled after some Democratic senators raised concerns over sexual harassment allegations leveled against his former aide, Rick Jacobs. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, placed a hold on Garcetti's nomination. Ernst's fellow Iowa Republican, Senator Charles A. Grassley, issued a report in May finding that the allegations of sexual harassment against Jacobs were a former a former deputy mayor were pervasive, widespread, and notorious. The report conclude, concluded that it was more likely than not that Mayor Garcetti either had personal knowledge of the sexual harassment or should have been aware of it. Jacobs has denied harassing anyone, and Garcetti has said he wasn't aware of any improper behavior. In a speech last month on the Senate floor, Grassley urged his colleagues to vote against Garcetti's nomination and criticized the White House. How hypocritical it is for this administration to encourage victims of sexual harassment to speak out, uh, yet when they do so against a powerful ally of Joe Biden, they're ignored, Grassley said. A White House spokesperson last month declined to comment on Grassley's remarks. Garcetti has said he has has backing from some Republican senators that could help him gain the votes necessary to win confirmation. The former mayor has waited far longer for confirmation, more than 500 days, than all others whom Biden has designated to be ambassadors, according to the nonprofit Partnership for Public Service. Libby Liu, chief executive of the legal organization Whistleblower Aid, said Tuesday that renominating Garcetti does a grave disservice to victims and survivors of workplace sexual harassment, and that Biden should put forward a new nominee. Whistleblower Aid represents Garcetti's former communications director, who alleges that she was kissed by Jacobs. He denies the allegations. Biden said uh, Biden on Tuesday also resubmitted nominations for Phil Washington to head the Federal Aviation Administration, Danny Werfel to lead the Internal Revenue Service, and Gigi Stone to serve as commun- commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission. The White House is expected to receive approximately 175 nominees from Congress who failed to clear the upper chamber last year, according to a White House official. Biden intends to continue processing more of those nominees in the coming weeks, the official said. And that was Biden to Biden renominates Garcetti to be U.S. Ambassador to India by Courtney Subramaniam and Dakota Smith from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. All right, let's go to this one. From the California section, the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 7th, 2023, one-time porn king will be ruled incompetent for trial. Ron Jeremy, who faces multiple rape counts, has severe dementia, prosecutors say, by James Queeley. 
Former adult film star Ron Jeremy is suffering from severe dementia and will be declared incompetent to stand trial on multiple charges of rape later this month, according to an L.A. County prosecutor in an email obtained by The Times. Jeremy, whose legal name is Ronald Hyatt, was first charged in June 2020 with raping four women he had met in West Hollywood bars and clubs. The the case quickly ballooned as dozens of women came forward claiming that the one-time porn king had been abusing women for decades at parties and adult film conventions or on movie sets. Jeremy, uh, 69, was later indicted on more than 30 counts of sexual assault stemming from uh, allegations made by 20 women, with some of his alleged crimes dating back to the 90s. The weeks before Jeremy's trial was set to, uh, to begin last year, his defense attorney, Stuart Goldfarb, walked into a Los Angeles courtroom and said his client did not recognize him. In an email obtained by the Times this week, L.A. County Deputy District Attorney Paul Thompson said mental health experts called on by both prosecutors and Jeremy's defense team have determined he suffers from severe dementia and there is no evidence that he is faking his symptoms. As a result of the agreement of the experts, the defendant will be declared incompetent to stand trial. His prognosis for improvement is not good. Thompson wrote, If he does not improve, we will not be able to try him for his crimes, because criminal proceedings are suspended as long as he is incompetent. We also cannot uh, get a guilty plea from him or discuss other measures or get justice for the victims in this case. Thompson and Goldfarb declined to comment on Friday. German, who was denied all wrongdoing, is scheduled to appear in a Hollywood courtroom January 17, where he, when he will be formally declared incompetent to aid in his own defense, Thompson said in the email. Although the although competency to stand trial is fluid, meaning a mental <clears throat> mentally incompetent defendant can later be found capable of standing trial after receiving medication or therapy over time, dementia is a progressive degenerative illness from which Jeremy is unlikely to recover. According to the email, the experts reached their conclusion based on a review of medical documents and interviews with Jeremy, his relatives, and several of the L.A. County uh, Sheriff's deputies who interacted with him while in custody. Some of Jeremy's relatives apparently suspected he suffered from dementia before his 2020 arrest, which was the catalyst that started the process that resulted in his driver's license being taken away, Thompson wrote in the email. Once declared incompetent, Jeremy will probably be placed in a state-run hospital. Leanne Young, a former British adult film star who first publicly accused Jeremy of assaulting her in an interview with the Times in 2020, said she was frustrated to learn that there were, there were concerns Jeremy had dementia long before the prosecutors brought charges against him. My first reaction, I was kind of numb, she said. They were aware of this condition before getting us all involved. They were well aware he had dementia, so I'm very disappointed that they didn't solve that bit before letting us go on that emotional journey for two and a half years. Greg Rissling, a spokesman for the district attorney's office, said prosecutors were unaware of the severity of Jeremy's illness at the time charges were brought. Although his attorney expressed some concern for his declining facilities, we believe him to be 
competent at the time of filing of the filing based upon reviews we conducted of him, among other reasons, Wright Sling said. We had no records at the time of filing indicating uh, that he had a dementia diagnosis. Young said she was wearing a bikini at an industry party at the former House of Blues on the Sunset Strip in 2000 when Jeremy came up behind her, sh uh, shoved her against the table, and forced himself inside her. The encounter lasted only seconds, according to Young, who said she fought him off quickly. After Young spoke with the Times, she said she was contacted by Sheriff's Department investigators and later called to testify against Jeremy at a grand jury hearing. Young said she doesn't regret coming forward, as she believes the wave of allegations against Jeremy sparked a conversation about sexual abuse in the adult film industry. But she's also concerned that, without a conviction, Jeremy may be absolved in the eyes of many of his fans. It's going to come down to public opinion now, and public opinion has looked at Ron like a god, she said. It could be an indication to other predators of, or viewers of pornography that they can get away with such crimes. And that was One Time Porn King Will Be Ruled Incompetent for Trial by James Queeley from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 7, 2023. All right, and now let's go to some articles from The Envelope for Thursday, December 29, 2022, starting with this one, No Choice But This Choice. The Fablemans needed Judge Hirsch as Uncle Boris, though it wasn't obvious until casting time by Chris Wagner. At about the 47-minute mark of Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, Judd Hirsch strolls in and makes the movie his own. Playing Boris, the cantankerous old-world great-uncle of the movie's teenage Spielberg surrogate, Sam, Gabriel LaBelle, Hirsch kvetches about his days as a circus lion tamer, rends his undershirt in grief for his his uh, recent departed, recently departed sister, and most important, tells Sam something essential about art. You can't do it halfway. And it must hurt. Art will give you crowns in heaven and laurels on earth, he tells the boy, who was a little frightened by the man's intensity. But it will tear your heart out. Hirsch roaring like a lion at 87 isn't even in the movie for 10 minutes, but it leaves such an impression that he's primed to join other supporting actor, supporting acting Oscar winners, Judy Dench, eight minutes in Shakespeare in Love, and Beatrice Strait, five minutes and two seconds in Network, who made the most of their brief uh, time on screen. I have no idea why he cast me, Hirsch said recently. Hirsch recently told The Envelope before an SAG screening of The Fablemans in Hollywood. The last thing I said to him was, thank you for parachuting me into this movie. Hirsch's performance may be brief, but his stories are not. Over the course of a lively hour, the man who came to prominence on the beloved sitcom Taxi, 1978-83, and was nominated for an Oscar as a tough love therapist in Ordinary People, 1980, wove tales about the surrealness of growing up in Coney Island. It wasn't a normal upbringing, let's put it this way. His first love, physics. I went to math, be I went to math because I always wanted the right answer, and as a biting passion for the theater, there's no close-up, and there's no way in which anybody can direct themselves, uh, direct themselves to you on stage. Much like Boris, Hirsch is a whirlwind of energy. As for why he was cast, Spielberg says it was an easy call for him and co-writer and producer Tony Kushner. 
When I asked casting director Cindy Tolan who should play Uncle Boris, she didn't hesitate. Judd Hirsch, of course, Spielberg recalled via email. Tony and I immediately realized that, without saying it, we'd uh, written the part for him. So it was Judd or Bust, and luckily he liked the script and threw in with us. The two had actually met 50 years ago. Hearst was at a Universal Pictures office in New York about to secure his first starring role in a TV movie called The Law. A Universal employee showed Hearst around the office, stopping at a small desk where a young man was hunkered down with his screenplay. This is Mr. Spielberg, she told Hirsch. He'll be big. Hi, said the unassuming Spielberg. The screenplay was Jaws. After the Fableman's shoot, Spielberg sent Hirsch a note. I hope it's not another 50 years before we get to get together again. For me, it was a real honor to work with him, Spielberg said. He's a grand master of stage, film, and television, and a joy to work with. He's ferocious and funny and heartbreaking, and he has an incandescent soul. Hirsch described a sort of itinerant upbringing in New York, bouncing between the Bronx and Coney Island, attending a new school almost every year. The word permanent did not exist in our family, he said. Wherever we were, we were not going to be there next year. His imagination ran wild as he played jokes on strangers and learned to appreciate the value of telling stories. Trained to be an engineer, he earned a physics degree at the City College of New York. He soon found himself gravitating toward acting. That was sort of a temporary idea as well, he said. It was like, maybe I can do this. For how long, I don't know. I didn't know whether I would work as an actor. I knew that I wanted to learn what I thought I was doing anyway with my friends, like kidding around with made-up languages. I thought I could add to that by learning acting. It was also a way to explore what was going on inside his head, namely an insatiable curiosity. I didn't learn how to play the piano, Hurst said. I didn't learn how to direct or make scenery. I learned something about expression, because when you're a kid, you're not taken seriously. If you want to express yourself, every teacher that you have will suppress it because you're out of line. You don't say, why does two and two make four? I did that. I would question things, and they'd say, sit down. When Hirsch made asked Spielberg what his great uncle sounded like, Spielberg responded, we hardly understood a word he said, but there was enough on the page for Hearst to channel, particularly the idea that the need to create art is like a drug or a destiny that can't be denied. This is what he imparts to Sam in his own zealous way. He leaves the kid a little shaken but also convinced on a bone-deep level of what he must do and that it must, and that may very well hurt. But because it's Spielberg, it will all be worth it in the end. That's Stephen, Hearst said. He'll never end anything catastrophically, because for him, life goes on all the time. When you do something for him, you want to be as positive as you think he is. Hearst manages to convey this optimism, as well as just a little bit te of terror, all in the blink of an eye. There was no choice but this choice, by Chris Wagner. Alright, this next one is called The Church of Empathy. Darren Aronofsky laments that his The Whale even has to address loss of human connections, but he continues to preach anyway, but he continues to preach away, by Mark Olson. Director Aaron, Darren Aronofsky has a way of opening up performers to new emotional depths 
explorations of inner pain that often seem to surprise even the actor them, actors themselves. So it has been with The Whale, featuring a celebrated lead performance by Brendan Fraser. In a recent interview for the Envelope podcast, Aronofsky said he didn't anticipate what he called the Renaissance, the outpouring of long-standing affection for Fraser. In the film, Fraser plays Charlie, <clears throat> a man whose weight has grown to some 600 pounds, putting his health at extreme risk. His main goal becomes to repair the relationship with his teenage daughter, Ellie, Sadie Sink, who has never forgiven Charlie for leaving her and her mother, Samantha Morton, for a man. Charlie struggles to make the most of the time he has left. Question. You first saw the whale on stage, and then you approached playwright Samuel D. Hunter about turning it into a film. What drew you to it? Answer. I remember reading the review of the New York Times and being like, wow, what a bizarre, crazy story to try to bring to the stage. What a unique character. So I was fascinated to go see it. And when it started, I was just... It was just characters that I, on the surface, could never understand or relate to. But by the end of the play, my heart was broken, and I knew these characters like I knew members of my family. I was deeply moved by the play. And so the next day, I reached out to Sam, and we got together. And I knew it would be a challenge to turn this into a cinema, but the amazing, amazing thing about the movie, what I really love about cinema, is that this is great exercise in empathy and that you can watch a movie about any person in the world, and if it's an honest truth portrayal, you will be brought into their life, into their circumstance, because we're all human. Question. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you have previously directed four actors to Academy Award nominations, and Natalie Portman won an Oscar for uh, her role in Black Swan. What is it you feel like you do with actors that gets them these, uh, these performances? Answer. It's a collaboration. It's what I love to do. I'm a terrible musician, but if I could be playing backup bass for the Rolling Stones, I'd be there in a minute. I just love to jam. So I love working with actors because they are musical instruments in that they can do this incredible stuff with their emotions and bring it out. It's almost a sacred time between action and cut when the actor is opening up and the crew was totally focused and you have these incredible artists in the crew and technicians that are just so focused on capturing and creating this moment. And then, and when that alchemy is happening, it's church for me. Question. There's been some criticism of the casting of Brendan Fraser and the film's depiction of obesity. Did that surprise you? Answer. The film is from the heart of Sam Hunter, who lived his experience and brought his personal experience to the screen. And I had Sam with me the entire journey, from writing the screenplay, adapting his own work, to being with me every day on set, to watching cuts and being with me, and he has become a great friend and someone who I was able to ask anything of. And so was Brendan. It, should come, it comes down to the question of, should certain stories be told? This is an exercise in empathy. What I love about Sam's writing is, through all of his characters and all of his plays that have incredible challenges, there is this incredible hope for the world. And what I love about Charlie is that there is not an ounce of cynicism in Charlie. There is such a beautiful creature inside of him that is trying to do good to, in the world, to love in the world. But he's a very flawed character. He's selfish. He's made lots of mistakes in his life, but he really, really, really wants to give something back. 
and I felt that this was a story that should be told. And it comes down to the question of, should we tell stories that allow audiences to get into the hearts and souls of characters that most of us judge the second we see them? I think if that does that, if it changes one person to look and say, oh, I know someone like that, I've, I've met Charlie, and there's a human here, and not the, this creature that isn't human, which is crazy that we even have to say that, then there is, that there is that type of prejudice in the world. I just hope people come with an open heart and pay attention and connect with Charlie, and that this film will change people. I really think that it can help the conversation. Question. You have a reputation as somebody who makes these dark, difficult films. And here, one of the last lines of the movie is, people are amazing. Do you see this as your most hopeful movie? Answer. I think in the tragedy of the films I've made earlier, there was a lot of positivity. I think Hubert Selby Jr., Requiem for a Dream, is all about love and what goes wrong. And so I do think uh, that's in the work. I think the lessons of COVID that pulled us all apart... All the, also, all the political stuff that was ripping us all apart is human connection is paramount. We are connected, but the fact that we're so connect, disconnected in so many different ways, just trying to remind uh, each other that with all of those gulfs, there is a way back. That with all of Ellie's pain and distrust and sadness and anger, that she can find love, hopefully can inspire us. It's definitely inspired me. That was The Church of Empathy by Mark Olson. And here's a little fun one here. This is called Who, uh, Close Encounters. The Fablemans give Steven Spielberg a good shot at climbing further up the all-time leader list for directing and Best Picture Oscar nominations. But recent history suggests star Michelle Williams is more likely to win than her director by Carla Meyer. Nine. A Fableman's directing nomination would be Spielberg's ninth, tying Martin Scorsese for second behind the late William Wyler's record, 12. 12. A Fableman's Best Picture nomination would pad Spielberg's all-time lead, to uh, lead of 11 total for an individual producer. 24. Awards seasons have passed since Spielberg won for directing 1998's Saving Private Ryan. He won his two other com uh, competitive awards for directing and producing Schindler's List in 1994. 3. Actors won uh, Oscars for Spielberg films in the last decade. Lead Daniel Day-Lewis Lincoln 2013 and supporting performers Mark uh, Rylance Bridge of Spies 2016, Ariana DeBose West Side Story 2022. Given that, Zero actors won for performances in Spielberg films before 2013. Despite nine nominations, Spielberg is clearly on a roll as a director of actors indeed. 50% of nominated performances from Spielberg films have won Oscars over the last 10 years. Lincoln nominees Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones and the Post nominee Meryl Streep did not win. That was Close Encounters by Carla Meyer. And those are articles from The Envelope for Thursday, December 29th, 2022. All right, and we got this one 
from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, January 8, 2023, Making a Symphony of White Noise. Noah Baumbach's Don DeLillo adaptation, his most daring film, is infused with innocence, fun, and visual splendor by Bonnie Johnson. Late in Don DeLillo's classic novel, White Noise, a scholarly friend discussing cinematic car crashes tells the story of protagonist. Look past the violence, Jack. There is a wonderful brimming spirit of innocence and fun. In the book, it's one of many absurd, absurd platitudes that uh, the characters use to make sense of a nonsensical world. In Noah Baumbach's adaptation, it's part of the opening scene. The scholar, Murray Susskind, played by Don Cheadle, screens a reel of stunt crashes for his students, and his comments set the tone for the film. The violence of the novel is there. Man-made disaster attempted to murder Nazism, but for perhaps the first time in a Baumbach film, is so pervasive spirit of innocence and fun, along with an eye-popping visual flair he's kept concealed for far too long. Whereas the book built built up a kind of fatalistic resignation, Baumbach's version of white noise is genuinely exuberant. Case in point, in a closing supermarket scene, Delila describes shoppers as aimless and haunted. In the film, the same moment ends in an eight-minute dance number incorporating the expansive cast. Yet framing this as a dichotomy glosses for over, for over the complexity of the source material. At the heart of the novel was always a bubbling domestic comedy, and not of the bitter, dysfunctional kind we've seen in previous Baumbach films. Jack Gladney, Adam Driver, and his wife Babette, Greta Gerwig, truly care for each other. The marriage glows with tenderness. Baumbach runs with the, their children's antic energy and lets it suffuse other parts of his film, animating even the story's most difficult third part with humor and affection that reflect the book's tone. Rather than betraying the novel's savage critique of modern life, Baumbach's approach illuminates DeLillo's humanism in the director's least cynical film since Kicking and Screaming, and easily the most daring he's made. Like the novel, White Noise, the film, contains three distinct parts. Waves and Radiation introduces us to the Gladney family and Jack's academic work in his first of its kind Hitler Studies department. The airborne toxic event tracks an industrial chemical leakage that throws the family's life into crisis. Dilaurama, take, uh, taking up the second half of both book and film, documents Babbitt's clandestine participation in an unsanctioned medical trial. Remarkably, the intellectual satire, environmental disaster tale, and noir coalesce more smoothly in Bombuck's movie than they did in the novel. A shadowy rogue pharmaceutical figure who dominates the story's third part now drifts like an apparition through its first and second rather than disorienting with a late entrance. More significantly, Bamba makes a bold and divergent choice to bring Babette into the climactic confrontation and its fallout. Her presence as a valuable grace note contributing to the film's surprising optimism. It was Brian De Palma, not a purveyor of innocent fun, who suggested Baumbach consider an adaptation to try things Baumbach's own scripts wouldn't allow. The latter filmmaker uh, co-directed a documentary about De Palma in 2016, and at the time, they seemed an unlikely duo. The elder and auteur 
of the lurid and gruesome originals such as blowout adaptations including Carrie, the younger firmly planted in the confines of grown-up mumblecore Greenberg, Francis Ha. Watching White Noise, though, the pairing begins to make sense. Who knew Bombach had it in him to choreograph intricate crowd scenes, crane shoot crashing, and combusting trains, or stage payback, stage a payback shooting at a sleazy motel bathed in neon-lit De Palma shades? Certainly no one familiar with Bombach's filmography, in which the most striking image to date was of two silent people in an empty subway car. Despite its long-assuming unadaptability, Delilo's story contains multiple strong visual moments, and Baumbach takes advantage. A first act set piece takes uh, place in a classroom, so impossibly uh, tweet it seems like a tribute to past collaborator Wes Anderson. But what starts off as a composition of color block and fair aisle takes on sudden urgency in Baumbach's hands. He splices in not only relevant found footage, but also the toxic events precipitating accident about which the book uh, barely speculates. In the process, he draws a line from mass hysteria to human carelessness, the result of which can be similarly catastrophic. And isn't that the theme of these last few years? The emergency response to the airborne toxic event is the centerpiece of both book and film and Bamba brings it to life with flour flourishes of his own. Susian air purifier trucks, hazmat suits a little more fabulous than they need to be, credit to Anne Roth who, who, who costumed De Palma's dress to kill. Delilo wrote that the toxic event had released a spirit of imagination, and we toured the evacuee camp uh, to behold myth-making and conspiracy theorizing in progress. Rather than despair over obvious present-day parallels, however, Baumbach limits fake news to folk songs and puppet shows. During the madcap fight, uh, flight from the camp, he sends Jack on an off-tackle run for a lost toy. With a third act still, while the third act still plunges us into more chilling waters, Baumbach guides us with a familiar sig uh, signifier. A chemistry lab looks like it belongs to Bunsen and Beaker. A visit to the A&P packs in maximal advertising language, and in an impressive coup, German legend Barbara Sukawa presides at the German hospital where Jack lands near the story's end, now with Babette in tow. As Sister Hermann Marie, Sukawa brings uh, to bear the weight of past roles when lecturing on grief and magical thinking. Philosopher Hannah Arendt, mystic Hildegard von Blingen, prostitutes and militants. Att attending nuns push not gurneys, but shopping carts, leaving the tragic with the mundane. By the closing dance sequence, Jack and Babette have faced their worst fears and emerged unified. For its trouble, the town earns its evident joy. The movie's one major demerit is a lack of screen time for Cheadle, whose character is welcome presence in the book. While the film eludes a slew of minor characters and subplots, Murray's omnivorous fascination is a counterpoint to Jack's increasingly grim self-involvement. As always, Cheadle steals every scene he's in with its, his chops and his charm. It's a shame Bamba gives him so little room, reducing Murray's complexity and using him mostly to advance the plot.
somewhat quickly noticed the uh, Gladney family's Altman-style overlapping dialogue. DeLillo has said in earlier interviews that Altman's films influenced his work. While Driver and Cheadle managed to assimilate the novel's stylized speech in a way that Samuel feels credible, it seems more awkward on Gerwig, perhaps because she hasn't been in front of the camera for some time, or because the role fa falls too far outside of her typical woman-child repertoire. Casting Driver as ten years older with an age makeup was a gamble, but it brings a winsome vulnerability that another actor might not have. It makes him the perfect standard bearer for the film's sincerely playful tone. Now that we know what he can do, I'd love to see Baumbach adapt another off-the-wall modern classic, perhaps Fran Ross's Oreo, a wild comic odyssey set on his home turf. I'd never have guessed he was suited for imaginative fiction, but now I hope he's only begun. That was Making a Symphony of White Noise by Bonnie Johnson. From the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, January 8, 2023. Johnson's work has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, The Believer, and elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles. Alright, and now let's move on to something from WrestlingRumors.net. Come on, stop hiding. You know who you are. This one is called... Come back, 67-year-old WWE Hall of Famer returning to the ring after 10-plus years, by Thomas Hill, January 8, 2023, in Indies News. One more, wrestling is a unique sport in that you will occasionally see people who are not normally wrestlers getting in the ring for a match. You don't often see a coach or a broadcaster taking part in, another sp in other sports, but wrestling is not exactly normal. It can be a special moment when someone gets back in the ring after a long absence, uh, though, though, and now we are, and now we are set to see it again. During a recent edition of his After 83 Weeks podcast, WWE Hall of Famer Eric Bischoff, 67, announced that he will be returning to the ring at a show in Florida on February 11. Bischoff said that his son Garrett. Gerald Briscoe, Wes Briscoe, and Bischoff himself would be in the ring, though he did not specify who would be wrestling whom. Bischoff's most recent match took place on the April 26, 2012 edition of Impact Wrestling, though the match only lasted three seconds. Bischoff has had quite a history in wrestling. Check out some of his better efforts. Opinion. This is the kind of thing that can make for a good attraction on an independent show, as what is likely going on going to be a father-son tag match uh, should work well. Bischoff is a name, and Gerald is the legend, so tying their sons in with them has potential. I like the idea that, uh, they're going with here, and that is better than you get with a lot of smaller shows like this one. You can find more from Thomas Hall at kbwrestlingreviews.com or check it as Amazon author page with 30 wrestling books. Get the latest rumors? Click to sign up for exclusive Wrestling Rumors daily newspaper. That was Comeback, 67-year-old WWE Hall of Famer returning to the ring after 10 plus years by Thomas Hall, January 8, 2023 from WrestlingRumors.net Alright, and now Let's uh, continue reading some articles from the L.A. Jewish Home, December 15th through the 28th, 2022, volume number 5, 
your favorite bi-weekly family read. And this is from the section Around the Community. And we start off with this one. Spivak opens a sixth grade in the 2023-24 school year. It is with great excitement that the Spivak Hebrew Academy announces its continuation and growth offering a sixth grade for the 2023-24 school year. This milestone marks a significant expansion of the school's educational program, offering more students the opportunity to receive a high-quality, affordable, religious, and secular education. The sixth grade at the Spivak Hebrew Academy will provide students with a well-rounded curriculum that includes a strong foundation in Jewish studies as well as core subjects such as math, science, English, and social studies. Students will also have the opportunity to participate in a variety of extracurricular activities such as sports, music, and art. The addition of the sixth grade will allow the school to better serve the needs of its growing student body and provide a more comprehensive educational experience for its students. It is our hope that this expansion will enable more students to gain the knowledge and skills necessary to become responsible and compassionate members of our community. The Spivak Hebrew Academy is committed to providing a supportive learning environment for all of its students. Our dedicated teachers and staff are committed to helping each, other, uh, helping each student reach their full potential and foster a love of learning. We are confident that the addition of the sixth grade will provide even more students with the opportunity to receive a high-quality Jewish education at an affordable price. Families are invited to learn about the sixth grade at Spivak Hebrew Academy and to visit our school. Please contact us at 310-553-9900 for more information. That Spivak opens a sixth grade in the 2023-24 school year, author unknown. This little short one is Beis Haya Mushka Tati Zid event. Beis Haya Mushka fathers and grandfathers join together for Hakel with their daughters for their annual Tati Zaidi event. Through special Rosh Hodesh Kislev learning, affordable performances, and the cutest board game, we explored what it means to follow the path of our fathers and grandfathers and complete the mission which they have started, to bring Moshiach. That was based Haya Mushka Tati Zid event, author unknown. Uh, this next one is called RCCSLA Fundraiser, author unknown. The community got together Sunday morning to raise money to show support for Rofe Holim Cancer Society as they gear up for their annual raffle campaign. As the preeminent resource for medical referral in the cancer in the cancer field, RCCS has a specialized understanding of physicians, patients, and diagnoses, enabling the best bespoke treatment solutions for each and every case. RCCS ensures that each human being will get treated by the ideal specialist, obtaining appointments and treatments as soon as needed, with dignity and grace. RCCS provides financial grants, insurance premium payments on an average $18,000 a year per family plan, and insurance industry guidance to ensure that top care is covered. RCCS also assists patients and families with maintaining medical records, insurance renewals, pain relief, and much more. Everyone enjoyed good food, friendship, and the opportunity to benefit from this incredible organization. That was RCCS LA Fundraiser author unknown. And uh, this one is called Commissioner Andrew Friedman 
meets Hungarian dignitaries, author unknown. Her Excellency, Hungarian President Katalan Novak, the youngest and first woman president of Hungary, was recently the featured guest at Kehila Yavne, where she addressed the congregation. She stated that Hungary has zero tolerance for anti-Semitism and echoed the recent statement of Israeli Chief Rabbi David Lau that Hungary is experiencing a major Jewish renaissance, both culturally and spiritually. Hungary recently demonstrated in the UN its support of Israel by joining 16 other countries in opposing referring Israel to the International Criminal Court for its occupation of Arab lands. The vote was 98-17 against Israel. President Novak has reiterated Hungary's support of Israel during her recent Israel state visit to her counterpart, President Haim Herzog, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and caretaker Prime Minister uh, Yar Lapid. As a follow-up to the president's trip to Los Angeles, Commissioner Friedman met with numerous dignitaries in Budapest and London. In a meeting with State uh, Secretary Zoltan Kovacs, Friedman presented the secretary with a golden replica of the Wailing Wall Hotel in appreciation for his friendship with the State of Israel. Also in Budapest, Friedman met with Hungarian Ambassador to Washington, Laszlo Zabo, and his wife, Ambassador Dr. Ivan Zabo. When visiting Los Angeles, the ambassadors joined Commissioner Friedman and his wife, uh, Haney for a traditional Friday night meal with Jewish delicacies and Zemmerat songs. While in London, Commissioner Friedman and Haney were guests of Ambassador Frank Kumlin and his wife Victoria for a scrumptious breakfast at the embassy. The ambassador, a close friend of the Jewish people, was the previous New York Consul General, where he worked closely with the Jewish communities, including Chabad, Munkaks, Talib, and Satmar. The ambassador indicated he, that he is proud of the alliance between Hungary and Israel. Commissioner Friedman stated to the Jewish home, I have not forgotten about 600,000 Hungarian Jews that were murdered during the Holocaust with Hungarian conspiracy. As former Hungarian President Janos Adder said, the largest Hungarian cemetery is Auschwitz. However, I am grateful and proud that a new generation of Hungarians and Jews Israelis are true loyal friends and allies and Hungary has again become a vibrant home for Jews. That was Commissioner Andrew Friedman meets Hungarian dignitaries. And this next one is called WIZO California hosts first female CEO of LL Airlines. Author unknown. Ben Tal Ganasio was invited to Los Angeles by Gina Raphael, chair of the Women's International Zionist Organization, California, to participate in a special event on Tuesday, November 29th. Over 200 supporters of WIZO came together to honor Raphael with the 2022 Leadership Award. Bennett Talganasia, the first female CEO of an Israeli airline, participated in a discussion about women in leadership moderated by Shirin Yadegar, founder of LA Mom Magazine. Raphael announced a new initiative of WYZO California in partnership with Elal. The Women's Leadership Program's objective is to empower women and girls at home as we work on behalf of women and children in Israel, she said. Both organizations have committed to continue empowering women through education and awareness. 
WIZO, the Women's International Zionist Organization, is the largest social services provider outside of the Israeli government, providing more than 800 social services projects helping women, children, and seniors in Israel. WIZO operates daycare centers, youth villages, centers for Ethiopian youth, senior centers, girls, and women's leadership training, and centers for women at risk. Later that day, Dr. Hillel Newman, the Consul General of Israel to the Pacific Southwest, hosted a special reception for leaders of the Los Angeles community at his residence. During the event, Ben Talganasia confirmed that Elal is increasing its flights to Los Angeles during the winter season. In past years, Elal reduced the number of flights from five to three during the winter season. The strong connection between Elal and the Los Angeles community demands that we maintain our five weekly flights between Los Angeles and Israel through the winter, said Ben Talganasian. Uh, our customers deserve a taste of Israel on their way to the Holy Land on five flights a week during the winter. We are the only airline that can offer that. Dr. Newman, who hosted the event, welcomed the move. El Al is a strategic asset for the state of Israel and has been a bridge between the state and the world since the beginning of our nation, he said. El Al is, a cri is critical to Israel's prosperity because of its important role of bringing tourists to Israel. WIZO California looks forward to increasing its movement and interested members can contact WIZO at racial uh, at wizocalifornia.org. This next one is called Yavne on Ice, Author Unknown. The wonderful Yavne Middle School girls went ice skating to welcome winter and the month of Kislev. They were joined by many staff members who enjoyed an out-of-school experience. The Ruach was amazing and everyone had a great time. That was Yavne on Ice, Author Unknown. And this, uh, uh, this other one is called Emek Staff Participates at Yarke Kala Trip, Author Unknown. Over Thanksgiving week, Rabbi Mordecai Schiffman, MX head of school, together with more than 30 men, including lay people and educators, traveled to Eretz Yisrael for a week of dampening and learning. The Yarke Kala program in its fifth year is organized by Jonathan, Emek alum, and Ellie, Emek parent, Istrin, who raised funds for the trip and organized a spectacular program. The experience is intended to foster a week of intensive learning as well as strengthen and inspire local Valley Village community members. The men attended a Nate's Minion at the Kotel every day, followed by learning at Yeshiva or Sameach in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Shivman and other Rebbeim prepped the source materials in anticipation of Rabbi Peretz's daily sh uh, shur. The afternoons were filled with trips to local rabbinic leaders and dignitaries who offered words of inspiration and blessings. One of the highlights of the tour was davening on Rosh Hodesh at the uh, Kerva Shul in the Old City. Additionally, Rabbi Shipman and Mrs. Michelle Andron were able to host a very special reunion dinner for local Valley Village Girls and Emek alum. The attendees were thrilled to be reunified and connect with their rabbim and administrators. That was MX staff participates in Yarche Kala trip. All right, and uh, this next one here is called YAYOE Eighth Grade Girls Build Leadership Skills at Kenneth Hahn Park. Author unknown. 
tackling team challenges, supporting each other, recognizing the power and responsibility of each individual, strategizing, applying, and analyzing leadership concepts are eighth, gr are eighth grade girls shown. As part of our focus on leadership, the eighth grade girls participated in a fun morning of adventures in team building. The morning at beautiful Kenneth Hunt State Park was facilitated by Red Werner, the head of SOAR, a well-known company that runs leadership development and team building programs for corporations, organizations, and youth. Our girls met each challenge with determination, positive attitudes, and unity. For well over a decade, the SOAR High, Ho High Ropes course has been a highlight of the YAYOE Girls Big Bear graduation trip. Thank you to Rabbi Goldberg for giving the girls this experience at the beginning of the year, which affords the girls the opportunity to IYH integrate the new tools and lessons into their growing leadership toolbox and apply them to their eighth grade year of learning, programming, and leading. That's Y-A-Y-O-E, 8th grade girls build leadership skills at Kenneth Hunt Park, author unknown. And this other short one is Link hosts donut decorating pre-Hanukkah event for children, author unknown. The children's division of the Link Kolel hosted a pre-Hanukkah event on Sunday, December 4th. It featured creative toppings that let, ch let children decorate their own donuts in a very delectable manner. It was led by Link's youth director, the indefatigable Mrs. Dina Rahm, who lent her considerable creative talents to making the event a fun afternoon for the children of all ages who attended. A special surprise was a puppet show led by Link's Rebitson Mrs. Batia Brander, who captivated the children with its authentic-like feel. That was Link hosts donut decorating pre-Hanukkah event for children, author unknown. Another short one. Uh, Yavna PTA's Hanukkah Bazaar features fun for the whole family. Author unknown. This past Sunday, over 600 people from across the entire community attended Yeshiva Yavna PTA's 11th annual Hanukkah Bazaar. It is the largest boutique in Los Angeles and it, fe it featured fun for the whole family. Over 40 amazing vendors from LA and New York came to showcase their gorgeous and unique items. Delicious food was made to order by Premier Catering, as well as Dippin' Dots and a fruit cart. There was also an incredible moon bounce area for, from Perfect Party LA with five fun inflatables and slides, including a pool with boats for kids to ride in, which kept the kids busy and entertained while the adults shopped. That was Yavna PTA's Hanukkah Bazaar features fun for the whole family, author unknown, and this one is called Hillel Brings IDF to Meet Students, author unknown. Last week, Hillel Hebrew Academy welcomed back as alumni student who is currently serving as a lone soldier in the IDF. Students gave him a warm celebratory welcome as he joined Hillel's famous Shabbat assembly. Together they sang, danced, and learned all about the IDF. Later, the soldiers spent time with our middle school for our pre-Shabbos Oneg. Which they, which they had the special opportunity to spend intimate moments with the soldier. Students asked questions and learnt what it's like to serve in the Israel army. Thanks to the F idea for facilitating this incredible moment. That was Hello Brings IDF to Meet Students. And we have this one, uh, YULA Girls Poland Trip, author unknown. On November 20th, 
75 YULA students and parents from the girls' division embarked on the first ever Poland Holocaust education experience. This was an educational trip like no other, filled with spirituality, emotion, and lots of history. We made sure to juxtaposition our visits to the death camps of Treblinka, Mazdanek, and Auschwitz with the graves of great Sadakim, like the Hosea of Lublin, Rabbi Elimelech of Lizask, and the Safas Emes, the Gerer Rebbe. We experienced firsthand how century-old Jewish communities such as Lublin, Tarno, and Lizjak were completely destroyed by the Nazis. We, we danced and sang Halal at the Shul of in Auschwitzim, a few miles away from Auschwitz, a quintessential Kiddush Hashem. We spent Shabbat in Krakow, a beautiful old city, and made sure to bring to life the old synagogues we visited, like the Shul of the Holy Rema, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, the author of Hamapa. The trip would not have been complete without a visit to the gravesite of Sarah Schneerer, the founder of the Base Yaakov movement, where the girls learned how she changed women's education in the and and in fact paved the way for an, insti an institution like the YULA High School Girls Division. This was an unparalleled life-changing experience that has impacted our students and parents for years to come. Thank you Rabbi Surfin, our head of school, and to Ms. Uh, ben Hamau, Dr. Williams, and Rabbi Dr. Menachem Hecht for making this dream a reality. That was YULA's Girls Poland Trip. Author unknown, this final one, is called Hillel's Fulcrum Field Trip, author unknown. The positive impact this trip makes on our students is unlike any other. Students spend the day engaging in hands-on opportunities to lead, solve problems, support, and become more connected to each other. They begin to step out of their comfort zones, take risks, and push beyond their limitations. Most importantly, they realize that they are surrounded by a community of people who love them and are rooting for them every step of the way. When students were asked to define the day in one word, this was what some said. Exhilarating, eye-opening, unforgettable, life-changing, enlightening, inspiring. Students are gifted with a bracelet after the trip that is made of the same material as the ropes and equipment during their activities. This bracelet, although small in size, can hold up to 500 pounds. It is used to signify that even if something doesn't look strong on the outside, it is capable of incredible strength on the inside. That was Hillel's Fulcrum Field Trip, author unknown, and those are all articles from the section Around the Community. Now here's a section called Lou's Views, and it's called What is Sam Bankman Freed Looking At? by Lou Shapiro. It's not every day that we see a $40 billion company file for bankruptcy, but that's exactly what happened on November 11, 2022, when FTX, the world's third largest cryptocurrency exchange, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Preliminary reports indicate that FTX might have a shortfall of as much as $8 billion. This implosion has caused investors to rethink the crypto market and is drawing the scrutiny of the Department of Justice. In summary, FTX accepted money from investors and then sent that money to Alameda Research, a quantitative day trading firm, which was founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, who was also the CEO of FTX. 
Alameda then used additional borrowed money to make risky trades that didn't pay off and resulted in FTX not having adequate capital for investors who tried to take their money out. The bankruptcy filing is intended to halt investors' draws and provide FTX with sufficient time to ascertain how to address the debt. Most of the chatter has revolved around how FTX is going to satisfy the debt of a million creditors. Unfortunately, the bankruptcy pleadings have not been encouraging. John Ray III is the attorney that is overseeing the FTX bankruptcy, uh, uh, the, uh, the bankruptcy proceedings. He also handled the Enron scandal, which caused $174 billion lost to, you know, to investors. Ray said, I have never seen a co company in worse shape than FTX. I have over 40 years of legal and restructuring experience. I have been the chief restructuring officer or chief executive officer in several of the largest corporate failures in history. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. The greater the loss to investors will result in the greater likelihood of the United States Attorney's Office holding those accountable for that loss. We recently saw this in the prosecution of Elizabeth Holmes. Holmes, the former chief executive of the blood testing startup Theranos, was sentenced to more than 11 years in federal prison for defrauding investors out of about $1 billion. The FTX scenario presents the opportunity to understand how the white-collar federal criminal justice system functions. In state prosecutions, the defense attorney and prosecutor usually make a deal and the judge rubber stamps it. The federal system is strikingly different. In a federal case, the defense attorney and federal prosecutor will ag agree on a guideline range, but at sentencing, the defense will try to persuade the judge to depart from the range by presenting various types of equity-based arguments. While the sentencing guidelines are supposed to be advisory, the judges give them a lot of weight. To calculate the relevant guideline range, you first identify the base offense level. Wire fraud, which would apply to FTX, is valued at 7. The amount of loss to victims is then added, and any amount above $550 million is 30. A 37 plotted on the United States Sentencing Guideline table comes out to 210 to 262 months, and that is before adding additional possible sentencing enhancements. Therefore, Bankman-Fried is facing 20-plus years in federal prison if he is charged and convicted of wire fraud in FTX. His defense team would have a difficult time arguing that Bankman-Fried's motivations were purely altruistic if, in fact, he pocketed $300 million in a 2021 round of funding while placing investors' money on precarious market bets. The fact that he is only 30 years old, graduated from MIT, and has no criminal record would work in his favor and provide the judge with legal justification to depart from the sentencing guideline range. In the Holmes case, the judge went four years below the guideline range. The single most important factor that a judge considers when granting leniency in sentencing is the contrition of the defendant. The more uh, that a defendant can convince a judge that they truly feel remorseful for their actions, the less time they will be sentenced to.
Despite being under a criminal investigation, Bankman-Fried is engaging in television interviews and openly discussing the FTX debacle. In his interviews, he takes responsibility for the failures but firmly maintains that he did not intend to commit fraud. If Bankman-Fried finds himself in a sentencing proceeding and doesn't own it, he could be looking at a much stiffer sentence rather than a lenient one. As the old proverb goes, speech is silver, silence is golden. Silence just might be Bankman-Fried's best commodity at this moment. That was What is Sam Bankman-Fried Looking At? by Lou Shapiro from the Lou's Views section. Lou Shapiro is a criminal defense attorney, certified specialist, and legal analyst. But most importantly, he makes the end of shul announcements at Adas Torah. He can be reached at lewisjshapiro at gmail.com. All right, we go to a section called Yoli's Tish, The Power of Song by Yol Halpern. Reb Shlomo Karlbach was found, found, fond of saying the following. When one person speaks on top of another person, it's called interrupting. When one person sings on top of another person, it's called harmony. Only Reb Shlomo can create a gem like that. For me, singing is life. I find myself singing and humming while online at the store, while waiting, walking to shul, and in my car. I deeply connect to music. Here's some of the different ways I use music in my life. I often do not sing due to my mood, but despite my, uh, I, do, I often do not sing due to my mood, but despite my mood. There are times when I feel negative about things in life, and I try to channel them into songs. It goes like this: Q Baruchu by Eitan Katz. Yo Lee, what do you think? Who do you think you are? You are nothing and not worthy of nothing. Oh vey vey vey, yum diddy dum. I know this sounds terrible, but what happens? is when you continue singing your negative emotions, they start becoming lighter and even maybe a bit silly. By the end of the tune, I'm usually singing about what is underneath the unhappiness. Recently, I worked at a, on a tune over Shabbos while walking to shul. After singing about my stress, I made this tune and realized that my stress was just coming from the unbelievable complexities of being a from Jew in the 21st century living in the great city of L.A. Reb Nachman says that the word hason comes from the word hazon or vision or prophecy in English. The hazon Rebbe Nachman tells us snatches the song from the place where prophets suckle. When Ashkevirosh made his party for the Jews in the times of the Purim story, he was trying to get the Jews to sin. He intended that the Jews would not merit the building of the second base Hami. Hamikdash due to their sins at this party. The Megillah says explicitly and hints at many of the different desires he tried to entrap them with, such as food, drink, immorality, and more. Curiously, though, music is not mentioned. The reason is that Akaviros knew that if he provided the Yedin with music, it would tug on their hearts and cause them to do Teshuvah, and they would refrain from imbibing the desires of the party. What I learned from th these two beautiful golden nuggets of Torah ideas is that music to the soul is like a key to a lock. It opens and unlocks the heart. Singing is experiencing an elevated state, a place where we get to feel what the best versions of ourselves look like. That's why it can lead to a yid to do teshuva. When we sing, we, often, we soften and open up our neshama.
I think most of my recent relationships in Los Angeles were forged over Nigunim. There are many people who I knew for years, people who would always get the token, how are ya, and move on, but now I feel close to them in a real way. What changed is that our relationship shifted uh, ever since we belted out Naftali Kempis Shehu Nota Shamayim at the back Kiddush in Shul. Now I feel like you are my brother. I know that doesn't sound too scientific, but it just works like that. There has been such a movement of growth and actus in L.A. of late, and I believe much of it has to do with Nigunim. Music is the ultimate people connector. I am a big dreamer. I have learned the pitfalls of being a dreamer, but I've, become, but I've come to appreciate its benefits. Being a dreamer can lead to dissatisfaction because undoubtedly life doesn't play out in the way that you dream. However, many of the things Hashem allowed me to accomplish in life started with me listening to music and dreaming of something that I want to accomplish. I dream about what it would, what it would look like, what it would feel like, and what I could accomplish. Many of my personal starts came about in this type, type of musical uh, dreaming that I, I described. It goes like this. Recently, I can't help but blast an electronic rendition of a Shlomo Ketz Nigum that has been floating around the internet. Search YouTube Harvest to Dum Dum. The Nigun is fantastic and when I blast it, I feel it in my bones. When I listen to this song, I dream about feeling the crypto arena with every type of Jew in Los Angeles and literally have the arena shake from all the Yedin dancing with each other. Now, I don't know if I will ever have the the hus to fi uh, of filling the crypto arena with a bunch of Yedin, but I know that many aspects of my life started as some good music and a dream. Always be singing. That's the power of song by Yoel Halpern from Yoli's Tish section. Yoel uh, Halpern is a businessman, a publisher of the LA Jewish home, and a true Hasid at heart. Originally from far Rockaway, New York, Yoel has always yearned to bring some of his fondest childhood memories back to life in the Los Angeles community. With that in mind, Yoel, along with many friends and local rabbis, started the LA, LA Mishmar, a movement of growth and vulnerability sweeping through LA. Yoel lives with his wife and three children in LA. Okay, this next one is from the section called Happening Happenings in the Hood with TM Zevi and the Doc. Looking for the most unique Sufanganya. When our editor told us about this exciting Hanukkah issue, we knew that our topic had to be a review of LA's most delicious Sufganyat. Lately, donuts have taken center stage in the battle for the most coveted pastry. Donut shops have begun to pepper the restaurant landscape around Southern California, and kosher establishments have not ignored the craze. Fried donuts can be found in almost every kosher eatery, from Pico to La Brea, as far north as Ventura, and all of the way down to San Diego. You can find uh, donut donuts topped with almost anything. Marshmallows, pretzels, halva, hummus, bacon, or brown sugar. Creamy fillings such as caramel, load, uh, lotus peanut butter, or pistachio are available as well. The donut craze is here, and it's here to stay. But with sunny Pesach destinations just around the corner, who can afford to put on the extra pounds and try the 20-30 different Sevganyat available? 
not us. And that is why we've decided to bring in an expert. Enter self-described donut connoisseur and insurance broker, Mr. Danny Fishman. Mr. Fishman has, has reviewed ev uh, every kosher donut in the greater Los Angeles area, from old-school establishments to pop-ups, housewife porch drop-offs, to back-of-the-alley cash deals, Krispy Kreme to Long Beach Beer Lab, Mr. Fishman is a walking kosher donut encyclopedia. What's great about Mr. Fishman is that no matter how bad a donut is, he always has something nice to say. For example, when, uh, when rating an unnamed donut in 2020, Mr. Fishman described the donut shop as super nice guys, no business making donuts. Mr. Fishman's donut talents can be found on his popular donut review vlog, his highly classified donut ranking spreadsheet, and if you're lucky enough to get an Aliyah at Chabad of Sola as Master Gabe, he may share a tidbit with you between, uh, between Aliyahs. Mr. Fishman's relationship and intimacy with donuts are palpable. In many ways, he's considered these doughy Hanukkah treats as friends who seem to come back every year in December. We asked Danny if he would guide us through the impossible journey. He agreed on two conditions. We limit it to four local establishments and we stick to the classics, jelly and custard only. With so many choices of places to go, we decided to pick two in the San Fernando Valley and two in the city. After much deliberations, we chose to go with Continental Bakery in Valley Village, Unique Bakery in Tarzana, Mensch Bakery in Hancock Park, and Schwartz's Bakery, which seems to be located on every corner throughout L.A. County. Schwartz is a classic. They keep it simple. You cannot go wrong with their jelly donuts, even around the Hanukkah table. Around the Hanukkah table. Schwartz's fried ball of dough has a fair amount of jelly, and the dough has some bounce. Noticeably absent is the traditional powered sugar on top. Unfortunately, their custard was not available at the time of printing, but Mr. Fishman's 2020 review describes their custard as excellent and plentiful. Mensch Bakery is the new kid on the block. Their fried drunk, uh, dunker looks super cool and is lots of fun. They have creative donuts with good dough and lots of rich filling. We have the classics along with their lotus butter filling. It's a donut worth trying. You won't regret it. Anyone who grew up in the valley lived with Continental Bakery as the only option in town. When you got home from school and you saw that Continental Bakery box sitting on the counter, you would beam with excitement. Over the years, Continental's custard donut was considered one of the best in the game. Although we miss the Continental of the 80s and 90s, they have maintained a donut that is tasty and delicious. This brings us to the clear winner, Unique Bakery of Tarzana. Unique donuts are truly unique. Large in size, extremely generous in their injected filling and pillowy soft dough. They have Boston cream and custard in addition to the traditional jelly. We highly recommend trying all three. They each are de decadent and have the perfect amount of sweetness. The dough to filling ratio is in some ways ironically miraculous. Mr. Fishman describes unique Sufganiat as Hanukkah perfection, but you get what you pay for. Both the price of the donut and the gas are going to going to burn to get Tarzan to get to Tarzana may weigh into your consideration. We think it's absolutely worth the ride. No matter what 
no matter what, you can't go wrong with any of the myriad of donut options in LA this Hanukkah. So put on your yarmulke and celebrate Hanukkah with some fried dough, friends, and family. Hag Sameach. That was looking for the most unique Sufangaya from the Happenings in the Hood section with TM Zevi and the Doc. Happenings in the Hood with TM Zevi and the Doc is a new review column of local Jewish and kosher establishments. Zivi Rutzner Stauber is a mortgage broker in LA and Stephen Kofferman is an oral and facial surgeon in Century City. All right, here's something from the community profile section. Lev L.A. Haknasad Orhim Bikur Holim by Ariella Kaufman. Out of tragedy and heartache, Galit Horowitz, along with her husband Shlomo, has created a unique home away from home for those who are suffering at a time with so many unknowns. When one faces medical challenges, the entire family is upended. They often can't even think of what they need at their most vulnerable time. In come Galit and Shlomo Horowitz to anticipate and provide for their every need. Out of her own tragedy and heartache, Galit and Shlomo have created Lev LA, an oasis for those requiring housing and support that is near local hospitals and shuls. Their mission is to provide hospitality for individuals in critical condition and their families and caregivers that is 100% free. Not only do they provide housing, <clears throat> breakfast, and hot dinner in the common area and Shabbos meals in their home, but also morale and emotional support for the weary. And Galit does this best because she's been there. Galit and her previous husband, Noam Capri, had tried to conceive for seven long years before being blessed with twin daughters. When they were a month old, Noam was diagnosed with heart failure requiring an immediate heart transplant. Galit was now single-handedly taking care of her babies and traveling from the village where they lived to Cedars Sinai every single day, sometimes twice a day to visit her husband after the transplant. Oftentimes, she would bring the twins to the ICU when she had no one to care for them. After returning home from the hospital, Noam contracted a virus a month later, rejecting the heart transplant and falling into a coma where he spent another three months in the hospital and then at a nursing home. During this time, Galit was again traveling daily with her twin girls to visit him and needed to depend on the kindness of family and friends while also sleeping at the hospital when she had nowhere to stay. The schedule left Galit feeling no longer human, with her entire life revolving as the sole caretaker for her husband and twin babies. Unfortunately, her first husband, Nome, passed away. With Hashim's help and blessings, Galit remarried to Shlomo, a Belter Hasid who innately possesses a love of caring for others, hosting, and creating a community. From this was born the dream to establish Lev LA, a place where they can provide housing, comfort, guidance, and a warm Jewish home environment. Shlomo was the one who put his entire neshama and effort into the development of Lev LA, cutting no cost when it comes to the comfort of the guests. Lev LA provides uh, private bedrooms, a 24-hour breakfast buffet, a hot dinner in the communal dining room, a library, and Shabbos and Yom Tov meals in the Horowitz home. Each room has a private entrance, an end-suite uh, private bathroom, a living area, and a fully stocked kitchen. Their premises 
are located in the Pico-Robertson area within walking distance to Schulz, MBY and Chabad SOLA, 5 minutes to Kaiser Cadillac Hospital, 10 minutes to Cedars-Sinai, 20 minutes to UCLA, and 25 minutes to Children's Hospital, LA. There are five suites, each with access to its own full kitchen. There's meat and milk for everything, a full fridge and freezer, a cooktop oven, a coffee bar, pots, utensils, br uh, bread, milk, condiments, eggs, uh, plata for Shabbats, Shabbos, and double sinks. Slomo ensures that the rooms are beautiful, beautifully decorated with modern decor, a library, books, and extra couches that serve as sleeping for children. Guests come from all over the world, Mexico, Canada, Israel, New York, and Las Vegas. They save thousands of dollars by not spending on Airbnb, hotels, and restaurants. The process from beginning to end is lengthy. Galit begins with doing research for guests before they come. There's an application process, their paperwork, and prepares for their visit. While they stay, she cooks and bakes everything, refusing her husband's offer to purchase some of their food. Lovingly baking her own challah, she can prepare a Shabbos meal for 40 to 50 at a time. More than the details they offer their guests, the Horowitz family provides much more than physical needs. Galit spends each day listening with attention and heart to the woes and challenges of her guests. Oftentimes, family members serve as caregivers during a medical crisis and have no one else to turn to. Even if they may have someone else to turn to, they don't want to burden another family member with added pressure. Galit is there to take the burden off of them. She listens and they feel comfortable opening up, especially since she has been through it herself. It's amazing the coach it takes to provide for the emotional and spiritual needs of her guests during their most vulnerable and painful times. Galit is talented at speaking because of the many classes uh, Sharim and Hafrashad Halab bakes that she runs. She knows how to speak and connect with people. While Galit is a full-time teacher and Shlomo is a full-time contractor, the work at Lev LA is where they also give their full attention. In addition to providing for their visitors, they also provide Shabbos meals for their community. They invite many people who may not have another place to go. Some of the Shabbos guests include divorcees with kids, singles, those who are no longer from, and people who want to be from, F-R-U-M, and are just beginning to learn. They invite families with children who are similar in age to the kids who are guests visiting for medical reasons. They intentionally host it on Friday night because people need that meal, whereas on Shabbos day they can eat the Kiddush at Shul. If not for this meal, many of the guests wouldn't have a place to go. Live LA provides a service to the community, not only through meals uh, they provide and bringing people together, but because every Jewish community needs to have strong Bekur Holim organizations. Lev LA is able to provide both services, a Bakur Holim that provides for visiting guests to Los Angeles and a place to connect them with locals. These Shabbos meals are so special because during the whole week, guests are busy with being in the hot, at the hospital and the bedside. So Shabbos is the time that uh, they get to be treated to a homely, relaxing, and restorative environment for Shabbos. That means that the meals are filled with singing, Divri, Torah, and Connection. 
Leveille has provided support for families in a way that is life-changing. Guests have had tremendous gratitude for the generous hospitality. Our time here surpassed all expectations. It became a sanctuary for rejuvenation physically, mentally, and spiritually. Others said that having a place to stay for free when the family was going through a medical crisis was a huge weight off our shoulders, and we were able to focus on our daughter's needs. Another guest applauded the Horowitz family, saying that your family is an exceptional example of Jews living simply and ultimately with the Creator and sharing an open door to all. The sense of calm that, have one's need, that, that having one's needs taken care of was expounded upon as a physical and spiritual healing, warmth and tranquility as if we were home. You are special people. Lev L.A. once had a family stay for seven months while the father was receiving care. The Horowitz family was instrumental in getting those children into a local school. They ensure that they have more food but also their every need by providing gift cards to local kosher markets. These accommodations are available to whoever is in need. They create and build a home environment so that the guests have somewhere to return to after a long day in the hospital or a place to recover after surgery and cancer treatments. The Horowitz family feels that while they do sacrifice a lot to keep the guest suites running, they feel extremely blessed to be busy with something that they love to do. If anyone wants to see what Lev LA is about, the door is always open for those who want to tour the premises and suites. Whoever would like to come for a meal can reach out and contact Lev LA through their website, www.levlev.com. Dash LA dot org. That's Lev LA Haknasid Orkim Bekur Holim by Ariella Kaufman from the Community Profile section. Okay, this next one is called Liquid Gold by Rafi Sackville. Yaakov Avino blessed his son Asher with a bounty that would come from the land of Israel. Rashi explains the bounty to mean olive oil in such abundance it would flow like a river. The Radak is more general in his interpretation. It's not oily, he explains. Rather, Asher would live off the fat of the land. Regardless of the approach, it is undeniable that Shevet Asher experienced great material success in their endeavors. They became instrumental in providing food for kings with produce of the highest quality. Not only has the blessing lasted for thousands of years, but the land in Israel to the east of Asher, the fertile area of the Golan, continues to reap rewards from the yellow oil. Here in the north, one can find the very best quality Israeli olive oil. Good requirements for olives are a rich growing area, a, condu a conducive climate and altitude, and ample quality and quantity of water. Some of the best oil comes from the Golan, where the land is rich in basalt. After the Hagim in Tishrei are over, the 50,000 plus acres of Israel's olive groves become beehives of activity. Left unattended for most of the year, the trees are ready to bring forth the fruits, the liquid gold of Yaakov Avenue's blessing. It's not hard to notice the olive trees in Israel. The road from Naharia that runs up to Ma'alot and beyond is peppered with olive groves. During fall, the fields come alive with activity. Cars parked along the highways and back roads is the telltale sign that families are busy at harvest. 
You can see them shaking the olive trees and collecting the olives onto nets spread, ar spread out around them. Extracting the oil can be a long and tedious business. Olive oil is more expensive than other oils and the process is far more exacting. The simplest and most effective means of extracting oil from olives is by compressing them much in the way one would squeeze an orange. The choicest time to harvest is when they are turning from green to violent red. The best olive oil is compressed as soon after the harvest as possible. Left longer and the olive might su uh, suffer changes in oxidation or its enzymatic structure. Each year, at the start of November, my neighbor Shlomo asked me if I'm interested in buying an 18-liter jerry can of oil. He buys from David and Bose Ankava from Moshav Eliad in the southern Golan. Their brand Meshek Ankava has all the correct and acceptable Kashrut certificates. An 18-liter jerry can weigh a little more than 36 pounds. It's quite a schlep from Shlomo's house to the car and again into the house where we siphon the oil into glass bottles. Those 18 liters last us a year. The oil is cheaper than the supermarket brands. For lovers of olive oil, however, the taste is so rich, fruity, and singular that I often question whether the oil uh, off the supermarket shelves is actually olive oil. The oil we purchase from the Golan has a rich, throaty taste. It's thick viscosity carries such a distinct pugnancy that it's so that is so vibrant that it was as we were tasting real olive oil for the first time. One year I wanted to see the operation firsthand and I wanted to meet the Ankavas and explore their world. So, on a brisk early December morning, we drove up to Moshad Eliad in the Golan some 50 kilometers away. David Ankava is 65 years old, yet he has the stamina and vigor of a young man. A man who has spent his working life in the sun, his eyes reveal a strong will and determination to succeed. He comes from a line of famous Moroccan rabbis, particularly Rabbi Yisrael Ankava, whose ma mausoleum he was recently privileged to visit in Morocco. Born and raised in Haifa, David studied at the Kifar Galim Agricultural School. When he was conscripted into the army, he joined the Nahal Brigade. The Moshav movement sent him to where Moshav Eliad stands today. When asked what the area looked like when he first arrived, he smiled and said, rocks, snakes, wind, and a lot of mud. After his first stint up north, David did basic training, after which he was sent to the Sinai for the duration of the Yom Kippur War. He returned to the then kibbutz after the war and went to work with cattle. David refers to the existence of cattle in this area, Paro HaBashan, dating back to the time of, of the Tanakh. When he moved to the Golan in the 1970s, there were mainly Syrian cows roaming and grazing in the area. Eventually, the kibbutz, which in 1979 became a Moshav, bought cows from Turkey and Europe. It was around this time that David began a small business based on a simple ideology. Yeshuv Eretz Yisrael and the highest quality product imaginable. His cattle are fed to additives, fed no additives or hormones like they are in America. In Israel, only 35% of meat is local. The rest comes from Portugal, Poland, Romania, and Australia. 
David is a practical man, keenly aware of the pitfalls of working in the agricultural sector, which oftentimes finds itself in crisis. It is not uncommon for either crops or the quality of meat to be subject to vagaries in the weather or the economy. Regardless of the circumstances, they are faced with, and in order to main, remain relevant, the Ankavas concentrate on, colo, on quality. With a love of agriculture and the land, and not wanting to place all his eggs in one basket, David began growing olives on 20 acres just down the road. Applying the same principles as his meat business, he considered growing olives as a return to the roots of his, of his country, where olives Eretz Gishur's packaging factory, where they bottled Meshek Ankava olive oil, David Ankava at the gravesite of his ancestor, Rabbi Raphael Ankava in Morocco. The rows of olive trees are strategically planted for automated harvesting and have been grown for thousands of years. Further, he wanted to ensure the oil he produced was pure. When we ask whether Israel is affected by the olive oil adulteration, David explained how there is a conflict of interest between those employed to maintain the highest level of standard olive oil. There is little to no oversight, and no one checks importers or bottlers from point A to Z. David gave me one example that illustrates the problem the industry faces. In order for bottles of oil to be stamped, made in Israel, they only require the smallest amount of local oil to be mixed into each bottle. He sighs when he describes how there are bottles readily available across the country stamped made in Israel but containing only a small percentage of local oil. There were widespread reports of adul adulterated oil finding its way onto many supermarket shelves. The health ministry said oils from overseas were detected in bottles found in supermarkets like Supersol. The bottled oils had been oil-pressed. This makes it easier for fraud because cold-pressed oil produces a higher quality, but less oil, thus requiring a smaller amount of the local product. Hot-pressed oil will increase the percentage of oil, but on the other hand, will cause the evaporation of the live flavor and odor and can impair the olive oil's taste. There are over 2,000 varieties of olive oil. The Ancavas imported trees from Italy and Spain. They were chosen for the known high quality of their oil. Like grapes, olive trees are not grown like they are in the rest of the country. Instead, they have been planted in rows very close together to prevent them from growing too tall. Were the trees allowed to grow too tall, the harvester would snap, and, uh, snap the upper branches. Unlike the primitive harvesting methods we watch as we uh, drive around the hills of Ma'alot, the Ankavas and other growers in the area hire the services of a company that runs automated harvesting machines. A tractor drives between the rows uh, while pulling a harvester that runs around both sides of the trees. Hard plastic threshers shake the tree, causing the olives to fall onto the floor of the harvester. On the floor is a moving belt that directs the olives into two bins on either side of the machine. When we arrived in the middle of the grove, the operators were making repairs to the plastic threshers. From behind the automated harvester, it looked like a shark's mouth turned on its side. Once the harvester is full, a tractor pulls up alongside it. The harvester empties olives onto the tractor bins, which make their way down to the, uh, to the factory. After watching the machine at work, we drove back to the factory where the olives are pressed. All the olive growers in the area are, uh, use the same factory and harvesters. As the olive harvesting season lasts only three months a year, the production schedule is tightly controlled. 
The process must be quick. The rule of thumb is that from the time the olives are harvested to the time they are turned into oil, there is a window of only two to four hours before the oil develops an unwanted aftertaste and acidity. The oil being well processed will be labeled extra virgin. Extra virgin is produced by mechanical means only and not by any chemical intervention. Each huge vat of olives is ripped onto a conveyor belt that runs it through a bath of pure water. They move through a vibrating bin that separates dirt, leaves, and twigs while the water is draining away. The clean olives are then transported into the factory proper and into a crusher. Before the birth of the modern technology, the olives were crushed by an apparatus pulled by a donkey. Not so today. The mechanical crushers turn the olives into pits and into, uh, into a paste. Once upon a time, the paste was stuffed into woven baskets stacked one on top of another and compressed onto a rock-based bottom under which sat a container. Today, the paste is mixed by agwars. The mixing process can be tricky and must be carefully monitored to prevent overheating. The goal is to separate the oil from the pulp. Although crushing breaks the olives, the oil remains within the pulp. The pulp is slowly mixed for no longer than 45 minutes. This causes the small drops of oil to coalesce separate from the oil from the other components of the fruit. Folks, we are out of time. Until next time, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.